This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WGDR. I'm Tony Epstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Lying on your back in the garage. You can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky. A few cotton wool clouds. Higher and higher in the great dome of the sky. Filling it with song. Higher and higher. Filling it with song. They sound quite mad, don't they? WGDR. Plainfield. We're gonna change. 
This morning is Graham Hancock. He's the best-selling author of numerous books, including Fingerprints of the Gods, Magicians of the Gods, and most recently, America Before, The Key to Earth's Lost Civilization, which continues his 25 years of research into the evolving geologic and archaeological discoveries of an advanced civilization that was wiped off the planet nearly 13,000 years ago during a cataclysmic event centered in North America that ended the last ice age and caused the legendary planetary flood. Graham Hancock, welcome back to the Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you. Great to be back with you again. So this has been like a long, ongoing detective story for you. Yes, it has indeed. A detective investigation that has now lasted more than... 25 years. Back in 1995, I published probably my best-known book, which is called Fingerprints of the Gods. Uh, and in that, I was, uh, it was my first attempt to investigate the possibility of a major forgotten episode in human history, of, of a lost civilization that flourished during the last ice age and was destroyed in the cataclysm that brought the last ice age to an end. Since 1995 and the publication of Fingerprints of the Gods, more and more evidence has come in which supports this controversial proposal of mine that there's a lost civilization in our backstory. And uh, every time this new information has reached a stage of critical mass, I have published a new book on it. And in 2015, I published a book called Magicians of the Gods, which was very much a follow-up to that 1995 book, Fingerprints of the Gods. But then since 2015, massive amounts of new information have come in, particularly focused on the Americas, and uh, showing that the story we've been told about the peopling of the Americas and the prehistory of the Americas, what we've been taught in our schools and universities until very recently, has been completely wrong and that a revolution is underway in our understanding of the past of the Americas. And for this reason, I decided that it was time to write another book. And that book is America Before, The Key to Earth's Lost Civilization. And I'm just back in the UK, actually, after a seven-week uh, speaking tour across the United States. Talk about the implications of this new evidence of human civilization in the Americas that's recently yeah. been discovered, going back, at least 130,000 years and yes. 
And that, that's about 10 times further back than was previously assumed. That's right. I, I don't want to sound too critical of or hostile towards archaeologists. They are human beings, just like all the rest of us. They are sincere and decent people doing hard work and following up what they believe in. But like any profession, uh, there is a hierarchy within archaeology. And when very senior names become attached to particular ideas, it's very difficult for others in the field to criticize those ideas without suffering damage to their own careers. The idea that was proposed really from the 1960s through until well into the 21st century is a model that archaeologists called Clovis First. This refers to a culture that archaeologists call the Clovis culture. We don't know what they called themselves. Archaeologists call them the Clovis culture because the type site was excavated near the town of Clovis, New Mexico. At any rate, the argument was that these Clovis, so-called Clovis people, uh, were the very first Americans, that there were no Americans before Clovis, and that the Clovis culture entered America from Asia around 13,400 years ago and that there had been no human beings in the Americas before that. The first challenges to this so-called Clovis First model uh, came in the 1980s and early 1990s, when, for example, uh, Jacques Cinq-Mars excavated bluefish caves in the Yukon and found evidence that human beings had been there 25,000 years ago. That's 12,000 years before Clovis. He had thought that his colleagues would welcome this discovery and would consider its implications for the story of the peopling of the Americas. Unfortunately, that did not happen. Instead, he was massively attacked by his colleagues who turned upon him like a pack of starving hyenas and set about systematically to destroy his reputation. He was laughed at at conferences. He was accused of making up his data. He was humiliated, and his research funding was withdrawn. But many years later, in 2017, Bluefish Caves was re-excavated, and everything that Jacques Cinq-Mars had found was proved to be true. He was 100% correct, but because he took on a dominant elite in archaeology, he had his career and his reputation ruined and his research funding withdrawn. This held back possible advances in the understanding of the peopling of the Americas by many years. Then we have the case of the site called Topper in South Carolina, uh, excavated by Professor Al Goodyear of the University of South Carolina. He found evidence that human beings had been there 50,000 years ago, way, way, way before Clovis and way before Bluefish Caves. And again, instead of this new information being welcomed and thoroughly checked out by his colleagues, Al Goodyear received an enormous amount of abuse. And again, he has been proved to be correct. And then finally, the most recent example, published in Nature, no less, on the 26th of April 2017, is the excavation of the Ceruti Mastodon site, which is just south of San Diego. And this excavation was undertaken by Dr. Tom Demeray, 
who is the chief paleontologist at the San Diego Natural History Museum, who kindly spent a day with me showing me his finds. And what these finds uh, demonstrate is that human beings were present in North America, just south of San Diego, 130,000 years ago. And that is 10 times as old as had previously been argued. And it's twice as old as human beings were in Europe or as human beings were in Asia and the Middle East. So this isn't simply a finding that rewrites the history of the Americas. This is a finding that rewrites the history of the world. And once again, the finding has received nothing but criticism and hostility from archaeologists. Rather than doing what Tom Demeray suggests, which is that they go and dig in those older deposits going back to 130,000 years. They've instead done everything they can to try to discredit the find. But the find is going to be very hard to discredit because it went through the rigorous peer review process of Nature magazine and uh, is very solidly based in fact. So there's also genetic evidence of a migration, a very interesting migration that occurred from Melanesia to the Amazon that's right. And, and again, this is, this is something, this is again new science, which is turning over the old picture. The, the old notion of the peopling of the Americas was that it all happened overland across the Bering Straits, which were a land bridge during the Ice Age when sea level was 400 feet lower than it is today. And then through Alaska and through North America and into eventually Central America and into South America. This model has been slightly revamped with the suggestion that some of the first Americans came by boats. They came in little rafts, uh, hopping from island to island, uh, down the Aleutian Island chain and so on. This has also been suggested. But the new discovery in genetics raises just a huge problem over this model. And the new discovery is that there is a close relationship at the level of DNA between certain tribes in the Amazon rainforest and the peoples of Papua New Guinea and uh, the Aboriginal peoples of Australia. Let's call them Australasians. So there is an Australasian DNA signal in the Amazon. And furthermore, this DNA signal dates back to the last ice age because skeletal remains have been found dating back to the last ice age uh, in the Amazon, which contain the same DNA signal. So this means that somehow a population that originally came from Australasia ended up in the heart of the Amazon jungle. They clearly did not come overland, nor did they come by little boats coasting down the coastline, because if they had done so, they would have left DNA traces in North America and in Central America. But no such traces exist. This DNA signal is only found in the Amazon rainforest. And the implication is that somebody during the Ice Age had the ability to cross the entire width of the Pacific Ocean directly from Australasia to South America and then to settle a reproductively viable population in the Amazon. And that is uh, truly a challenge for archaeology to explain because according to archaeologists, no human population is supposed to have had the capacity to cross an ocean on the scale of the Pacific during the last Ice Age. And when you speak of the last Ice Age, you mean the, the Ice Age that ended about 13,000 years ago? Well, yes, it ended, it ended in a cataclysmic event, which is known to geologists as the Younger Dryas. And the Younger Dryas is not a single moment, it's a period 
that lasts for about 1,200 years. And this period begins cataclysmically with a big rise in sea levels and a sudden massive drop in global temperatures 12,800 years ago. And it continues with evidence of uh, incredible turbulence and distress with the die-off of all of the megafauna, the mammoths, the mastodons, the woolly rhinos, the saber-toothed tigers, and so on. They all become extinct at this time. The Younger Dryas episode continues until 11,600 years ago, when again there's a massive rise in temperature, and this time global temperatures shoot up very rapidly, indeed almost to the level that they're at today. So this is the period called the Younger Dryas. It's 1,200 years of cataclysm, between 12,800 and 11,600 years ago, and this period marks the true end of the last ice age. But the last ice age began about three million years ago. It's referred to by geologists as the Pleistocene, and we now live in the geological epoch known as the Holocene, which technically began 11,600 years ago at the end of the Younger Dryas. And that Younger Dryas period was caused by... The theory is that it was caused by a comet. Yes, uh, you're right to call it a theory, and furthermore, it's a controversial theory. But behind it are more than 60 major scientists, all of them attached to major universities, all of them with PhDs, and all of them contributing to dozens of high-level academic papers that have been published in journals, such as the Journal of Geology, such as the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, such as Nature. Over the last years, between 2007 and today, 2019, dozens of papers have been published. And what these papers are bearing witness to is the likelihood that a comet entered the inner solar system about 20,000 years ago. This was a very large comet. And it's normal behavior for comets, which are lumps of rock bound together by ice, it's normal behavior for comets to break up into multiple fragments. And that, it is theorized, is what happened to this very large comet, perhaps as much as 100 miles in diameter, that entered the inner solar system 20,000 years ago. For the next 8,000 years, there wasn't much of a problem the comet and the Earth kept on missing each other. But the comet was breaking up into multiple fragments, and those fragments were spreading out along its orbit. And 12,800 years ago, at least four objects, each in the range of about one kilometer in diameter, fell out of the meteor stream that is the remnant debris of the comet and hit the Earth with the impacts focused on North America and on Greenland. And the evidence is that 11,600 years ago, there were further impacts. This time, the impacts affected a major ocean, causing tidal waves, throwing up an enormous cloud of water vapor into the upper atmosphere and creating the sudden global warming that occurred 11,600 years ago at the end of the Younger Dryas. So it's a very complicated, it's a very complicated picture. We have to account for massive flooding across North America, we have to account for a layer in the Earth, which is called the Younger Dryas boundary layer, also sometimes referred to as the black mat. And this layer in the Earth is firmly dated to 12,800 years ago. And it contains multiple examples of what are called impact proxies. In other words, iridium, platinum, melt glass, a bit like the trinitite created in nuclear explosions, nanodiamonds, 
these nanodiamonds are created by the shock and the heat of a cosmic impact, and so on and so forth. These, these impact proxies bear witness to the giant cataclysm that struck the Earth 12,800 years ago. And although the theory continues to be disputed by those who don't like the idea, principally archaeologists, who don't like the idea of a cataclysm intervening so recently in the human story, the fact is that the new evidence continues to mount. And the most recent papers published in Nature Scientific Reports in March 2019 further this case greatly and show that the effects of the impacts were not only in North America, but also in South America, also all the way across the Atlantic Ocean in Europe and as far east as Syria. We're dealing with a truly global disaster here. The best explanation for it is the Earth interacting with fragments of a disintegrating comet, much as Jupiter interacted with fragments of the comet Shoemaker-Levy 9, which hit Jupiter in 1994 with devastating effect. We now have to face the fact that the same kind of thing has happened here on Earth. Mm -hmm. So in addition to all of the latest evidence supporting that, there's also lots more circumstantial evidence that points to the existence of a prehistoric lost civilization. Yes. So what led you to theorize that there was a lost civilization that was highly advanced, and how has that developed over the years? Well, part of it is to do with myths and traditions from all around the world that speak of a golden age, of an advanced uh, period of human civilization that was brought to an end in an enormous cataclysm. There are more than 2,000 flood myths from all around the world, and archaeology has tended to dismiss these as uh, fantasies uh, and as primitive superstitions. And yet, the flood myths connect directly with the geological evidence we now have about global flooding at the end of the last ice age. I'll give you an example of one of those so-called myths, and that's uh, Plato's famous story of Atlantis, not many people know this. Uh, Atlantis is so much associated with the New Age, but actually the first account, the first surviving account that we have of Atlantis comes from Plato, in the works of Plato, and specifically in the Critias and Timaeus dialogues. And Plato tells us that he got the story of Atlantis from his ancestor, the famous Greek lawmaker Solon, who visited Egypt. It was a renowned and famous visit reported on in the time. He visited Egypt around the year 600 BC. And there in Egypt, Solon, Plato's ancestor, was told the story of Atlantis by Egyptian priests, of how there had been this great civilization thousands of years before, and how it had been destroyed in a giant flood after incurring the anger of the gods. And Solon asked the Egyptian priests, when, when exactly did this happen? And they replied very matter-of-factly, oh, 9,000 years ago. Now let's do the maths. That was in 600 BC. 9,000 years ago in 600 BC is therefore 9,600 BC. In other words, when we put that into straightforward calendar years, that's roughly 11,600 
years ago, or if we want to be more exact, 11,619 years ago, since we live in the year 2019. The interesting thing is that 11,600 years ago coincides exactly with what geologists call meltwater pulse 1b, a sudden rise in sea level that occurred with that massive rise in global temperatures at the end of the Younger Dryas that I spoke of a few moments ago, 11,600 years ago. So when Plato tells us that Atlantis uh, was destroyed 11,600 years ago, his information coincides exactly with the latest information from geology. And that suggests to me that he did not make the whole story up, as archaeologists claim, but that instead he was basing the story on solid facts and information that had been passed down across the generations. Of course, we all know the biblical story of the flood of Noah. That's perhaps one of the most famous flood myths uh, ever to occur. But if we want to look at circumstances on planet Earth when there was truly a global flood, we really only have two occasions. One is that sea level rise 12,800 years ago, and the second is the even larger sea level rise 11,600 years ago, which was, of course, global. It was a global flood. And uh, I think Plato was absolutely on the money when he indicated that we had lost track of an advanced civilization then. I love these kind of convergences of ancient legend with modern scientific discovery. And there's another aspect of legend that corresponds to some of the circumstantial evidence pointing towards a prehistoric advanced civilization, and those are the, the myths, the uh, Tucano origin myth, and, and also the Edfu accounts. Yes, the Edfu building text. Well, thank you for reading my book uh, so, so, so carefully. You're indeed, you're indeed uh, bringing up points that I raise uh, in the book, because we spoke of the Amazon jungle a few moments ago, and of how there's genetic evidence of a settlement of people there during the Ice Age uh, from Australasia. It's fascinating that the Tucano, uh, a people of the Amazon, have an origin myth that tells of how they were brought to the Amazon by quote-unquote superhumans. I'll be perfectly frank, I, I read that reference to superhumans as reference to the survivors of an advanced civilization of the Ice Age. And uh, we're told how they brought the ancestors of the Tucano into the Amazon. They traveled in a serpent-shaped canoe that was steered by a supernatural helmsman. With them also was the quote-unquote daughter of the sun who taught them how to make pottery and the gift of fire. And uh, these ancestral Tucano were shown the best places to settle in the Amazon, the best places to create their villages, to go hunting, to plant their fields. And then they were left there and their ancestors remain, their descendants remain there to this day and still tell this extraordinary origin story. And the origin story does compare, intriguingly, with a group of texts from ancient Egypt which are called the Edfu building texts. And these texts are found between the inner and outer enclosure walls of the Temple of Horus at Edfu in Upper Egypt. And they are copies of much older source documents. When the Temple of Horus was built, it was built on the site of a much older temple that had fallen down. 
and the new temple inherited the archives of the former temple. And amongst those archives were documents said to be written on animal skins that were falling to pieces. And the priests decided to preserve these documents permanently by carving them deeply into the walls of the new temple. And when they did so, they told us that they were copying from much older source documents that had been in the archive of the previous temple. In brief, what the Edfu texts describe is astonishingly like the story of Atlantis. They describe what they call the homeland of the primeval ones, which is a gigantic island in the middle of the ocean. They describe how it is afflicted by a sudden cataclysm, some object described as a snake or a serpent strikes down out of the sky and devastates the homeland of the primeval ones, and then a flood pours in and drowns the majority of its inhabitants. But there are survivors, and those survivors make it their business to wander the world. There's a very specific phrase for this wandering in the Edfu building text. They wander the world, and their mission is to attempt to restart or to reincarnate or to reinitiate their lost civilization. And it's made clear that these survivors settled in many different parts of the world. They settled in Egypt, but another place that they went to, I suggest very strongly, was South America. And I think we're in the Tucano origin myth. We're looking at the other side of that resettlement story. And you like to say that we are a species with amnesia. Yes, indeed we are a species with amnesia. Uh, We all know in our own daily lives how easy it is to forget things. But my goodness, in, in the long story of the human species, how much have we forgotten? How much do we not know about ourselves? Right, and there's no hard evidence of this lost civilization, and there's been like rampant destruction of... There was the burning of the library at Alexandria. You write about a holocaust of the Mayan culture by the Spaniards destroying an ancient literate society and tons of evidence going back. By the way, it's not true that there's no hard evidence for this lost civilization. There's there's a great deal of hard evidence for this lost civilization. It's just just not evidence that archaeologists like very much. But in terms of uh, being a species with amnesia, there are two major issues. The first issue, and nobody disputes this, is that the younger Dryas, whatever caused it, whether it was a comet or something else, and I'm convinced of the evidence that it was a comet, Whatever caused it, it was a global cataclysm on a truly humongous scale. And we can measure that very directly in the massive extinctions of animal species that took place at that time. So we have a, we have a world-changing global cataclysm occurring between 12,800 and 11,600 years ago. That certainly wiped out a great deal of evidence. Consider the sea level rise at the end of the last ice age. During the ice age, sea level was 400 feet lower than it is today because all that water was frozen up in ice caps on top of North America and Northern Europe. And then with the melting of the ice caps, the sea level rose. And so sea level today is covering more than 10 million square miles of land that was above water during the last ice age. And very little of this land has been studied by archaeology at all. In this way, the cataclysm has hidden from view much of the story of our past. The second problem is our own behavior. And this is particularly true 
in the Americas, I do indeed talk about the Maya and the really appalling destruction of Mayan literature by the Spanish priests during the conquest of Mexico. Thousands of Mayan documents were burned, heaped up in piles and just burned and destroyed and utterly wiped away. So that today we are only left, out of all those thousands of documents, we're only left with four Mayan codices that are still intact. Secondly, there's the whole issue of the North American earthworks, the earthworks of the Mississippi Valley. More than 90% of the earthworks of the Mississippi Valley, and these are giant and spectacular constructions, more than 90% of them that were documented in the 19th century no longer exist today. They've been plowed under, turned into agricultural land, or replaced with industrial parks or housing estates. No wonder we're a species with amnesia, since not only were we afflicted by a giant cataclysm 12,800 years ago, but also we ourselves willfully destroy the evidence of our past, of the past of the human species. It's not surprising that we have only a limited memory of that past. And we obviously have very, very different values than that last lost civilization. Well, the case I make in my book is that the lost civilization was fundamentally Native American in origin, and that it, it emerged out of, out of recognizable Native American concerns, which very specifically include shamanism. And as a result, I believe that this civilization was very different from our civilization today, uh, that it did things in very different ways. And although skeptics kind of mock at this suggestion, I think we should be open to the possibility that this was a civilization that deployed and developed human faculties that we today do not pay any attention to. So if you ask most mainstream scientists if there's such a thing as telepathy or telekinesis, they will laugh and tell you that it's complete nonsense. But that anybody who's been involved in shamanistic altered states of consciousness will know that there is telepathy that it isn't something fantastically made up. In fact, anybody who hears the phone ringing and instinctively knows who's calling is receiving just a little bit of telepathy. I think we shouldn't dismiss these human faculties as impossible. I think we should be more willing to investigate and to consider them. Telekinesis would raise the possibility that our ancestors were able to move very large blocks of stone with the focused power of the mind rather than using leverage and mechanical advantage. Our society does everything with machines. We do everything with leverage and with mechanical advantage, and therefore it's very difficult for us to recognize achievements that were brought about by some other technique using the direct power of the mind to manipulate matter. I'm not claiming that that's definitely the case. I'm suggesting that it's something that needs to be looked into. But if we look at technological evidence that we would understand of this lost civilization. I would cite, for example, the ancient maps that have survived. Just like the Edfu building texts, which were copied from much older source documents, so there is a category of maps that were drawn up between the 1300s and the 1700s of our era, but that are based on much older source maps now lost. The most famous of these maps is the Piri Reis map, which shows the west coast of Africa and the east coast of North America and South America. And on this map, Piri Reis, who is a known Turkish admiral who drew the map in 1513,
states that he based the map on more than 100 older source maps and that those source maps had been rescued from the library of Alexandria before it was burned down and that they had been carried off to Constantinople, the city that we now call Istanbul, which was where this Turkish admiral got his hands on them and incorporated the information in them into his map. What's fascinating about the map and others in this category is that they include very precise relative longitudes. And longitude is a scientific problem. And it's a scientific problem which our civilization was not able to solve until the end of the 18th century, when marine chronometers were invented that could keep accurate time at sea. This is the fundamental machinery that you need in order to establish your longitude. And if you're a sailor and you don't know your longitude at sea, you're in grave danger at night of sailing into a cliff that you think is 300 miles further west or 300 miles further east of you. Longitude is literally a survival issue. And our civilization didn't crack the longitude problem until the end of the 18th century. So it's fascinating on maps that were drawn up in the 1500s based on vastly older source maps. It's fascinating to find extremely precise longitudes there. And since we know that in the 1500s our mariners could not do longitude, those accurate longitudes must have arisen from the older source maps. And this therefore suggests that we had a civilization on Earth that was capable of mapping the Earth during the last ice age, because that's the other thing about the Piri Reese map. It shows the Americas as they looked during the last ice age, not as they look today. And it's true of other maps in this category, that a, a civilization existed during the last ice age that explored and mapped the world during the last ice age, and that did so with highly accurate relative longitudes. Therefore, in our terms, a civilization of the Ice Age that was at least as developed as we ourselves were at the end of the 18th century. I'm also very interested in the evidence pointing to the technology of understanding human consciousness. That, yes. And ayahuasca is, is a wonderful example of that, considering that it consists of two very specific plants that have to interact with each other in order to produce these very powerful effects that have the ability to wake us up and expand yes. our perspective from beyond our very limited and often very dangerous egocentric perspectives. Yeah. Now, I think the reappearance of ayahuasca in the world, the way that ayahuasca is now spreading out of the Amazon jungle and is spreading all around the world so that ceremony is available in any major city today, is an intriguing development. The use of ayahuasca in the Amazon is extremely ancient. Uh, it's thousands and thousands of years old. And the, as you rightly point out, the creation of ayahuasca is itself a scientific achievement because neither of the two ingredients of ayahuasca are psychoactive on their own. They are two different plants of the Amazon rainforest. Neither of them is psychoactive on their own. They have to be cooked together to produce the brew that we call ayahuasca, which is profoundly psychoactive. And since there are more than 150,000 different species of plants and trees and vines in the Amazon, it's impossible to imagine how this was done by trial and error. I think we're definitely looking at evidence of science in the ancient Amazon, in the creation of this extraordinary brew that is changing the world 
today. Uh, another example of science from the Amazon is the neuromuscular toxin curare, which is the basis of modern anesthesiology. That's an example of something that our scientists learned from the scientists of the Amazon. Curare consists of 11 different ingredients. None of them are effective on their own. They all have to be put together to make curare. And again, this is a scientific achievement in my view because to do that again out of 150,000 different species of plants, trees and vines by trial and error seems to me almost impossible. I think we're looking at, uh, at examples of science and I think that we as a culture have a great deal to learn from the shamanistic cultures. The greatest mistake that we perhaps have made in the technological industrial world that we've created is to sever our connection to spirit to deny that spirit exists, to reduce everything to matter, to reduce everything to the production and consumption of material goods, to define ourselves in terms of how much we own or how much we possess. These are fundamental mistakes that our society is making. And we could learn to reverse these mistakes if we were willing to swallow our egos a bit and learn from the traditional cultures of hunter-gatherers who practice shamanism in the Amazon to this day and recognize this kind of knowledge as a legitimate science. I believe it absolutely needs to be recognized as a legitimate science. Our, our science is far too mechanistic at the moment. It does not take account of the possibility of spirit. It even defines consciousness as simply an epiphenomenon of brain activity, as though our consciousness, our very consciousness, the essence of ourselves, is simply an accidental byproduct of our brains working to help us survive. Everything is supposedly driven by, by survival, and we got these big brains in order to be more efficient survivors, and as an accidental byproduct of that, we got consciousness. When scientists say that, they're not stating a scientific fact. That's not a proven fact at all. The only fact is that consciousness is the greatest mystery of science. And it's a mystery that science continues to refuse to investigate properly. But it's a mystery that ancient shamanistic cultures have been involved in for a very long time. And it's a mystery that concerns religious and spiritual beliefs as well. And one of the lines of evidence that I have followed in America before is astonishing similarities between the spiritual system of the Mississippi Valley in North America and the spiritual system of ancient Egypt. The very same beliefs about what happens to the soul after death, a leap to the sky to the constellation of Orion, passing through the constellation of Orion to the Milky Way beside which Orion stands, making a journey along the Milky Way, being judged in that journey on the deeds and actions and thoughts of one's life, being held to account for the life that one has lived. These ideas are identical in the Mississippi Valley and in ancient Egypt, and they're too idiosyncratic and too complicated and too detailed to be the result of coincidence. They imply very strongly a connection. And the evidence that I present in the book is that this connection is best explained not by some kind of ancient Egyptian missionary expedition to the Mississippi Valley in historical times, but by the fact that the peoples of the Mississippi Valley and the peoples of ancient Egypt were both beneficiaries of a legacy of ideas from a much earlier civilization, that they have a remote common ancestor 
So just as we can find that two individuals who apparently have no relationship whatsoever are in fact quite closely related at the level of DNA when we do the DNA research, so also we can find that two cultures that superficially appear to be very different and unconnected, when we go into the deep level, we find that they are very closely connected and that the best explanation for this close connection is that they shared a remote common ancestor. And it's fascinating how this study of the afterlife, of this ancient science of the journey into the afterlife, is an extension of this awareness and understanding of human consciousness. Absolutely. And the, the fact that they're sharing a similar kind of mythological representation of that journey. Absolutely. And it's the same. It's the same. This brings us back to, to ayahuasca, because ayahuasca, in a sense, allows a preview of that journey. It allows the individual the chance to see what awaits after death. And that's why ayahuasca is called the vine of souls or the vine of the dead. And I believe that in the Amazon, in the distant past, as is still the case today, it was part of, let us call it a spiritual technology for exploring and investigating the mystery of being human. And this spiritual technology did not only involve substances like ayahuasca, it also involved gigantic archaeological sites. And it's fascinating that emerging from the Amazon rainforest as a result of the tragic clearances of the Amazon rainforest just in the last few years, and again I report on this extensively in the book, emerging from the Amazon rainforest are the remains of gigantic earthworks, which are very similar to the earthworks of the Mississippi Valley. They're geometrical in form, they're on a huge scale, a scale of hundreds of meters. You find squares, you find circles enclosing squares, you find an octagon enclosing a square. All of these massive earthworks were unknown to science until about 10 years ago, but because of the clearances of the Amazon rainforest, they have begun to emerge. And the evidence is that they were used for spiritual practice, and I suggest that they were used for the same spiritual practice that we find in ancient Egypt and the same spiritual practice that we find in the Mississippi Valley. And that's practice concerns the investigation of the mystery of death and uh, the, the doing so in a very practical and direct fashion. I think that we're looking at the remnants of a truly ancient spiritual system that is distributed all around the world that has its origins in a lost civilization of the last ice age. One thing I'd like to mention concerning the Mississippi Valley is how we have tended to underestimate the achievements of Native American ancestors. It was this underestimation that allowed settlers to feel free to destroy Native American monuments and earthworks in the 19th century. But when we now go to those earthworks that remain, and when we measure them very carefully, we find that they are highly sophisticated constructions. I'll give you a couple of examples, if I may, from, from Ohio. In Ohio, we have three really intriguing earthwork sites. One of them is called Serpent Mound, and I'm sure many of your listeners have heard of Serpent Mound, and I would urge those who've not yet been there to go there, and to go there particularly at the summer solstice, the 20th and the 21st of June. 
I was there at the summer solstice in 2017, and my wife Santa is a photographer, and she put a drone up over Serpent Mound, 400 feet above Serpent Mound, and we watched the sunset. And it's astonishing the absolute precision of the alignment of the jaws of the serpent with the setting sun on the summer solstice. This is a really remarkable feat of surveying and setting out on a scale of hundreds of meters. And then also in Ohio, we have two other intriguing geometrical sites. They're called Newark and High Bank. And Newark and High Bank are 60 miles apart, but both of them contain an identical geometrical figure. And that geometrical figure consists of an octagon connected to a circle. The fascinating thing is that, and we've only known this in the last year, when accurate measurements were done, is that the octagon-circle combination at Newark is oriented at exactly 90 degrees to the octagon-circle combination at High Bank, 60 miles away. And to do that across a distance of 60 miles is an astonishing feat of surveying and geometry and astronomy and setting out. And it's been staring us in the face for thousands of years, actually, but it's only just very recently that we've noticed it. So what are the implications of that? I mean, how, how do you see that being done? The sites themselves tell us it was done. Mm-hmm. That, that somehow, thousands of years ago, Native American peoples were able to so accurately connect two sites 60 miles apart that the major geometrical figures within them could be oriented at precisely 90 degrees to one another. That's something we could do today with modern surveying equipment, but it's not something that is supposed to have been possible thousands of years ago. And it suggests to me again that we have underestimated our ancestors and that our ancestors may have been deploying technologies that we don't understand and that we are therefore unable to recognize. All we can recognize is their results. And it's taken us a long time, in the case of Newark and High Bank, to recognize those results. But once recognized, they're extremely puzzling, and they raise question marks over our whole idea of the prehistory of the human species. And you talk about in the book how many of, probably most of the Native American tribes in this country have legends going way back, unbroken in an oral tradition of prehistoric history. That's right. We have, we have extremely ancient legends in the Americas, and we must now, as a result of the, the most recent scientific findings, uh, for example, those findings of humans 130,000 years ago in San Diego, we must consider that the antiquity of these legends and traditions may be truly enormous. The implications of human beings in the Americas 130,000 years ago are absolutely staggering. I mentioned this earlier, but that's twice as long as human beings had been present in Europe and twice as long as they've been present in the Middle East and Asia. The old model of the origins of civilization, uh, and indeed the model that is still taught in our schools, is that civilization began in the old world, specifically in the Fertile Crescent in Mesopotamia uh, in the Middle East. And, And part of the basis for that argument was that human beings had been present in the Middle East for at least 60 or 70 thousand years. Nobody considered that America could have been the place where civilization originated because of that now discredited Clovis First dogma, which held that there had been no human beings in the Americas until 13,400 years ago. 
Now that we have evidence that human beings were there 130,000 years ago, we have to reconsider the whole story of the origins of civilization, because that's tens of thousands of years before human beings were in the Middle East or in Europe. And it may be that our prejudices, our blindness, our addiction to particular models of the past which we are unable to let go of, it may be that these have blinded us to a, a staggering truth about the origins of civilization, that it didn't begin in the old world at all, that it began in the new world, the new world that was in fact the epicenter of the global cataclysm that unfolded between 12,800 and 11,600 years ago. And you also mentioned that there are various legends, and I've heard these legends as well, that this long-lost, highly advanced civilization was destroyed because of its arrogance and losing its yeah. way. And it makes me think about our civilization today and where we stand. Yeah. Me too. Me too. P particularly since the comet that caused the cataclysm of the Younger Dryas is still with us. When comets break down into multiple fragments, they form meteor streams. And every meteor stream that we know of, whether it's the Perseids, the Leonids, the Aquarids, the Orionids, the Taurids, or whatever, every meteor stream is the result of the fragmentation of a comet. The meteor stream that resulted from the fragmentation of the comet that caused the Younger Dryas Cataclysm 12,800 years ago is the Taurid meteor stream. It still exists. We still pass through it twice a year. Our next passage will be just in the next three or four weeks. And there's been a lot of headlines about this in the last week that astronomers are going to use this opportunity to study the storied meteor stream much more closely because there's great concern that it still contains extremely large objects that are capable of causing another cataclysm in the world on the scale of the cataclysm that happened 12,800 years ago. We have to be careful or we could become the next lost civilization. Our future security is not guaranteed. I don't mean to spread gloom and doom because this is a problem that we can solve. We have the technology now to sweep our cosmic environment clean. What it takes is the will to do that. Spend a bit less money on weapons of mass destruction and warfare and mutual hatred and fear and suspicion and spend a bit more money on protecting the planet and we could solve the problem. But if we today were to confront a cataclysm on the scale of the Younger Dryas Cataclysm, I'm quite certain that our civilization would not survive it. Those who would survive it would be the meek of the earth. It would be the hunter-gatherers in the Amazon rainforest, for example, or in the Namibian desert. Hunter-gatherers who are daily in the business of survival, who know everything about survival. It's they who would pass through the cataclysm. It's their descendants who would pass on the human story. And... 12 or 13,000 years from now, they might be telling myths and traditions about how there was once a great advanced civilization on this planet that became arrogant and cruel and incurred the anger of the gods and was destroyed, except in that case that civilization would be ours. It's really quite remarkable how many boxes we tick with Plato's story of Atlantis because he, he tells us that Atlantis became arrogant, it became cruel, it began to impose its will on other less powerful peoples around the world. It became conceited, and in a ringing phrase, Plato says that it ceased 
to carry its prosperity with moderation. That sounds a lot to me like our civilization today. We're way too up ourselves. We're too full of ourselves, too convinced that we are the apex and the pinnacle of human achievement, too conceited, too arrogant. We don't carry our prosperity with moderation. We flaunt it in front of other peoples in the world. Um, if we carry on on that course, and if we carry on multiplying hatred and fear and suspicion in the world, then we will be incompetent to deal with any environmental disasters, including of a cosmic nature, that may confront us in the future. We don't have to be the next lost civilization. The choice is ours, but we need to make that choice now. We need to start behaving in a very different way. We need to learn the lessons of the past. Mm -hmm. Graham Hancock has been our guest. He's the best-selling author of numerous books, including Fingerprints of the Gods, Magicians of the Gods, and just recently, America Before, The Key to Earth's Lost Civilization. Give us your website. Yes, it's grahamhancock.com, G-R-A-H-A-M-H-A-N-C-O-C-K.com. And there's masses of information on the new book there on America before there and uh, lots of information in general about my work. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. It's been a great pleasure talking with you. I finished the book last night and I thoroughly enjoyed it. I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed this, this entire detective story that you've been telling for all these years. Thank you. Thank you for reading the book so thoroughly and thank you for having me on your show. I very much enjoyed talking to you. Be well and, and take care. Thank you. Bye-bye.
fear by cowering in your physical body for eternity? Your body is a boat to lay aside when you reach the far shore. Or sell it if you can find a pool. It's full of holes. It's full of holes.
responsible for the subject and can be injured in his defense, but not permanently, since the first three souls are eternal. They go back to heaven for another vessel. Four remaining souls must take their chances with a subject in the land of the dead. Number four is Bob, the heart, often treacherous. This is a hawk's body with your face on it, shrunk down to the size of a fist. Many a hero has been brought down like Samson by a perfidious bar. is Ka, the devil, most closely associated with the subject. The Ka, which usually reaches adolescence at the time of bodily death, is the only reliable guide through the land of the dead to the Western lands. Number six is Kahabi, the shadow memory, your whole past conditioning from this and other lives. Number seven is Seiku, Remains. And out of the sun's gates come little girls in dresses of fire wearing pigtails of braided smoke which stem from their moon-cratered scalps, the glowing seeds of a nightly garden that will blossom into full moons regardless of the sun, veil the night in the seven names of the wind through the tales of their wind-blown fathers. Who will father these mothers of light, and what will become of me, children of the night? Only some will star the sky. Only believers in death will die, and fathers must feather the wings of women, for the unfeathered masses dangle ridiculous carrying crosses to phallic-filled tombs. The future sells silence through blood-rivered wombs that ripple with riddles of cows and spoons and birth moons, earths and suns centered at noon. She buries her eggs in the soil and plants her feet in the sky. Soil seeds the circus of carrots and clowns and minstrels show our desires. And here I stand, court gesturing infinity, fetal fisted for revolution, but open hands birth humility. Now what is the density of an egoless planet? Must my spine be aligned to sprout wings? I'm slouched in the sling steps and tangled with gang reps, but my orbit rainbow Saturn's rings, mystical elliptical, presto polaris, karmic flame future with Saturn and Aries, and now I'm a fish called father with gills type dizzy, blowing blood and liquid lullabies through the spine of time to tranquilize the nervous system's defeat. 
At the feet of the river, the children are gathered, or rather buried in the mass gravesite of the night. They are the seeds of light planted in the sky, but the night and skies are meaningless to their unearthly eyes. They are our children playing chess on the sunburnt backs of one-eyed turtles, checkmating a lifetime slow crawl to enlightenment, cashing in their crown and glory from magic and contradiction. The children of fiction, born of semen-filled crosses thrust in cavalry's mound, with memories of Mignana's millennium. The gravity of the pendulum, the inscription of the grail, the rumors of one famine and diseases and storms of hell, all hail the new beginning, behold the winter's end. Bring on the puppets and dragons as the ceremonies begin. For they have come to shatter time and bring back the dead newborn, an army of me, bearing change in the front line and shadows in the field mines, the wilderness and the lights in the city. I have seen them. A tumultuous army of bastards and beggars, madmen and idiots, witches and harlots, dancers and lunatics, singers and sinners, losers and lovers, students and teachers, poets and priests. Orbiting the realm of the ordinary through the ordinance of those ordained by the beast. These are our children, love-laden life lanterns casting shadows that shepherd the flocks, crying wolf in the moons full at sirens of love's lull, the offspring of Gibraltar's rock. Who will deny him and thrice crows the cock? Will it be you, Peter? Decked in Demir's denial, masquerading in matter, over-minded, under-trialed. Self is a servant to serpent with wings. Three is the beginning of all things. Triangles to rectangle your wings. Let fission blur not your deservings. Pile stone, unearth ancient learnings. See self as a ghost of your servings. If you're serving the father, there's no son without mother. Parent bodies discover water bodies and drown. Wade me in the water till Atlantis is found. On the seas of ourself, I'm starfish and unbound. Heard the name of that mound, a stone mountain. Underwater volcanoes erupt, water fountains of youth. Lest this carnal equation cancel out wind and truth. Throw me beyond some time and drench me waterproof. Let leaves drop forever, rain sunsets on my roof. As I sit on the front porch of my sanity, deciphering ham bones to Van Gogh. This vanity, oiled egos, canvas and frame to be reborn, unborn, unburied, unnamed. A reflection through a blood-stained glass window of souls gone yellow around the edges. Carbonated dreams and blurred daily lives. But let family bring focus. Out of swamps blossom lotus. The muddy water blue daughters of infinity. Gravity we water bodies bodhisattvas our serenity as we rise with the tides towards divinity and she will be raised by wolves just below the masonry dixon line where eagles noose the misuse of osiris's omega papyruses and their claws clenched so that the vultures of our memories may feast upon the remedies of ancient laws lynched and flop to the treetops of the forethoughts we have forgotten Yes, silence will be begotten of the wind. The silver eyes of the darkness are her friends. They sometimes plant forever in their dens. On the mountainside, but sometimes now and then, in between the rise and set of you and I, may blue visions know the depths of liquid skies. And some ask me if she cries in the night, and there's a substance of her tears that drench the days with light. Shit, you better hope she do. Cause they're riddled with fur coats and painted faces dancing at the peripheries of perfection. They eat Chinese apples that stain their teeth red, and they'll cap a cosmos of chaos, and in a moment's notice the children are on the train, selling chocolates with their mothers in the background, fundraising their dreams from the dead. 
and the authors of order our corresponding catharsis and change the leaves of my needs from orange to red. I need fruit and vegetables, for these living things can feed the span of wings. Thus she was born to charter my flight into the blues of night. I am the darkness that precedes the light. A pupil of the sea's reflective sight. Notebook in hand, I footnote land and write. Plot dot 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 and dot my eyes is right. And cast my lot amongst the children and the night. of emotion and divine devotion opening the notions of medicines and potions emanating the brilliance of a trillion suns as love flows in the current of the river that runs tapping and unraveling a sacred conversation grounding meditation and crazed illumination communicating love is its own demonstration arteries are city streets open navigation heart pulses beats lungs and trees both breathe deep as i leave beat when the seasons repeat Subways and trains, blood vessels and veins All one in the same brain, given a different name Love is the limit as we give the heart a visit Moving up and then we're in it as we're living by the minute Impermanent phenomena, rise and fall To a feeling always calling, creating us all
That's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, have a wonderful week.